Welcome to another edition of Speaking of Water, Circle of Blue's series of conversations with water experts on the big topics of the day. We're starting the year by looking forward. In the first weeks of January, we've tried to identify the stories to watch in 2021, both in the US and internationally. Today, we're focusing on one country in particular, and that's China. To do that, I have two guides to show us the way. I'm joined by Jennifer Turner and Scott Moore. Jennifer is the director of the China Environment Forum at the Wilson Center. And Scott is the director of China programs and strategic initiatives at the University of Pennsylvania. Welcome to you both. Really happy to be here. We're going to cover a lot of terrain here, but I want to take the conversation in two directions. One is looking at water issues relevant to China's foreign policy and its relationships with its neighbors. And the second is to explore China's domestic water challenges. So we'll start internationally. And Scott, there's been a lot of consternation in recent years about China's dam building on rivers that it shares with its neighbors, particularly in the Mekong. And there's been some changes in that relationship uh, recently with new satellite data and agreements between the various countries in these basins. So what might we see in the Mekong and, and how has the situation changed there? Sure, and thanks again for the invitation to join you uh, today, Brett. I think there were there are two points I, I'd make at the outset. One is that certainly uh, dams are the major issue when it comes to transboundary water um, relationships with China's neighbors. But uh, water quality is also uh, an issue, and I would just briefly mention that in the past that has been a significant uh, source of friction especially with Russia back in the mid-2000s when there was a notable spill of uh, benzene and other toxic uh, chemicals uh, on a, uh, one of the rivers that uh, China shares with Russia. But you're absolutely right to focus attention on, on the Mekong. And that region is dominated by concern for a number of, of high dams that China has built over the last couple of decades on its uh, side of the border uh, and in the headwaters uh, of the Mekong region. I think it's important to separate that concern into a couple of categories. One is just kind of geopolitical. You know, this period uh, in which China has engaged in a rapid uh, process of, of dam building uh, has also just coincided with its broader rise uh, as an economic, political, and military force in the region. And of course, there are a lot of historical and social tensions that exist between China and many of its Southeast Asian neighbors. So I think water issues kind of have to be seen in that broader context. But that does lead to the second element of your question, which is specifically related to hydrology and flow in the Mekong. Broadly speaking, what these uh, high dams do uh, is they interrupt the flow of water from the, uh, the upper reaches of the Mekong into the downstream and lower reaches. And they do that both in just sort of raw quantitative time uh, terms, but they also disrupt the, the seasonality of those flows, the tempo of those flows. And that, that seasonality, that kind of temporal element um, is really just as important for thinking about the negative impacts of those high dams on China's downstream neighboring countries. And those impacts include ecological damage. So you have fragmentation of aquatic habitat for fish and other uh, species that live in the, uh, the Mekong and its tributaries. You've got uh, temperature, sediment, sediment flow impacts. And then you also have uh, impacts on uh, flooding, on water supply. That's particularly a concern, obviously, under uh, drought uh, conditions or when you have unusual degree of water scarcity. 
And then you also have impacts on things like food security. So one of the things that makes the Mekong a little bit distinctive from other major rivers um, is that it has a very significant inland fishery centered on Cambodia's Tonle Sap. And that's a very significant source of food security for Cambodia. These dams that are being built disrupt that inland fishery quite a bit and therefore negatively impact food security. It's also important to note that in addition to the dams that are built uh, within uh, China, China is also a very important source of financing for dams in countries like Laos. So it's kind of both uh, an influence within its borders as well as further downstream. And final point uh, in response to your initial question, Brett, this issue has long been kind of simmering uh, as a source of, of tension between China and its downstream neighbors. But just in the last 18 months or so, we've seen it kind of flare up in tension really as a result of a U.S.-led push to increase uh, hydrological data availability to downstream countries. And what that data uh, shows, or at least appears to show in some cases, is that dams within China's borders withheld substantial quantities of water during times of drought. So appears to kind of have done that at the expense of downstream countries, or at least that's the narrative that has kind of come out of that. So that's a, been a source of rising tension in recent months. You bring up a couple points that are relevant, not just in the, the Mekong Basin, but within all of China's foreign relationships in the Asia-Pacific region. That's the growing power of China and its willingness to go beyond its borders for influence. So I want to bring Jennifer Turner in here to discuss the Belt and Road Initiative, which is China's infrastructure push beyond its borders to expand influence abroad. And a lot of those projects are financing projects that do affect water resources. So Jennifer, how does the, the Belt and Road Initiative fit into this uh, regional narrative about China and its relations with its neighbors? Well, it's not just regional, it's global. You needed a few more superlatives. It's the, it's the largest, most extensive infrastructure investment project by any one country ever, right? Um, and so, yeah, so it, it does extend well across its border. The goal is to, in the first five years, the goal was to promote energy development. And as all of you know, at Circle of Blue, everyone knows that energy uses water, not just hydropower. I mean, in China's first five years of the Belt and Road Initiative, 80% of their investments were in fossil fuels, particularly coal. And these were not the ultra supercritical coal-fired plants that are, in, are now installed in China that, are, that use air cooling, much lower water footprint. These are a lot of the older kinds of coal-fired power plants that are very thirsty, right, to cool the coal-fired power plant. And, and, and that's a big concern because these, these coal-fired power plants are being built, I mean, in Pakistan, Zimbabwe, all around the world, and they're not doing environmental impact assessments because they're following the rules set forth by the host countries. Um, let me toss out one example. Um, in Zimbabwe, they're building a big coal-fired power plant in the north. It's called the Sengwa Coal-Fired Power Plant, but it's very dry there. So of course the Chinese also are coming in and saying, we can build you a 250 kilometer pipeline to take it from Lake Kariba, which happens to be shared with Zambia. <laughs> so, but again, China is exporting what has been their own energy development model, right? Coal-fired power that uses lots of water. That's one of the bigger concerns as, as a water person that I have in looking at this kind of investment. China domestically is now saying it'll move away from these types of carbon intensive, water intensive uh, energy developments. Is that not being translated into the Belt and Road Initiative projects? I think across the board with the Belt and Road Initiative, while, while Xi Jinping has 
put forward that he wants to green the Belt and Road. And there's lots of discussions on this. There's Chinese and international NGOs and experts from all sides giving the Chinese government advice, but it is really challenging. I mean, let's just even take like, they're, they're the number one in the world on renewable energy, you know, solar and wind, which are more water sipping energy technologies, but there are a number of obstacles domestically that are, that are kind of holding back some of these Chinese domestic clean energy companies from going out in the Belt and Road. There's efforts to try to break down those obstacles, of course. It, it's tricky. You have to keep in mind too, that the Belt and Road Initiative, while we say it's the Chinese government's you know, big initiative, not every aspect of it is controlled by the Chinese government. There's the state-owned enterprises go out on their own. Again, there are key projects that the central government will know about, but it's just, it's hundreds and hundreds of projects. And Scott, isn't it like 170 countries now officially? Um, so it's hard to keep track of what's going on. So it, it, is, it is a concern for, you know, but, but I think that the, what is exciting within China, as you, as you indicated, is that you know, China has been working to decrease their dependence on coal-fired power, number one in the world, as I said already, on solar and wind, and lots more, you know, regulations on coal-fired power plants to limit their water footprint. So, yeah, how we translate that to, to take this, this onto the road is, is still tricky. This is a good point to, to shift to the domestic policies here, particularly with climate and as they relate to water. And Scott, I know you've done a lot of infrastructure work when you were at the World Bank and, and afterwards. How will the, the policies from the top in China translate into changes in water use or water pollution, water quality on the ground? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I think one of the, the interesting things about China and water is that it's water is, is kind of a tricky policy area to really for governments and states for, to, to really kind of wrap their arms around. Uh, certainly we see that in the U.S. Um, whenever you have a, a kind of water crisis, whether it's uh, something like Flint, a water quality issue or, or a water uh, management and, and quantity issue like drought in the Southwest, we often kind of run up against this crazy quilt uh, division of responsibility between you know state and federal and local governments, and we have this very complex system of water law and all these things. China is a, an interesting example of a large country that has really put a lot of effort into trying to reform its approach to managing water and making it, in many ways, a pretty high-level priority. And one reflection of that is a series of uh, really ambitious water policies, both to try to reduce overall water use. And China is one of the only countries in the world, certainly the only large economy, to have set a, uh, a cap on total national water use. Um, and then also to try to address the quality side of things and to address really pervasive water pollution. I hasten to add, we could have a whole other conversation about, and Jennifer would, would have a, a lot of expertise to add to this, this too, about how those policies get implemented, whether they get implemented and what outcomes kind of actually follow from them. But it's worth just kind of appreciating that water is uh, an issue that, that uh, the Chinese government, the Chinese state takes really seriously and has implemented or formulated some really ambitious responses to. Broadly speaking, what that's done so far is it has measurably improved China's water use efficiency. So the amount of water that is consumed in order to generate a unit of, uh, uh, of economic output or, or GDP, that has improved uh, dramatically, especially over the last decade and a half or so. And then you've also seen some uh, improvement in water quality, um, though it's been mainly confined to 
particular regions where there's really been a, a heavy investment in pollution control technology and an enforcement. There are still plenty of parts of the country where water pollution is rampant and remains one of the major environmental health crises uh, that China faces today. So a pretty mixed picture in terms of outcomes and implementation so far, but a really interesting set of kind of strategic policies um, that have been put into place. And if I can jump in here, should note too that a lot of China's water shortages today, you know, can be attributed to pollution. I mean, they have a term, pollution-induced water scarcity. And what's been encouraging besides, of course, these, you know, the water pollution action plan and Yangtze River protection law, like Scott was saying that from the top down, there's a lot more energy being put into water over the past few years. Previously, something like seven ministries in China had some hand in water for about the past three years. Now, the Ministry of Ecological Environment, you have their hand on the tap, shall I say, of, of looking not just at a pollution, a little bit on quantity issues. But I want to point out that that even in terms of, of citizen participation, a few years back, the Ministries of Environment and Housing sent out a call, this kind of campaign, the Black and Stinky River campaign or water campaign. And they, they said, oh, Chinese public, if you find a stinky body of water, WeChat us, right? Send us, geolocate, tell us the problem and we'll deal with it. And they were obviously, you know, okay, pun coming. They were flooded with all these entries from people all around the country saying like, this is stinky, this is smelly, this is awful. And so the ministries turned to Ma Jun, one of the leading water activists in China. He is an NGO called IPE, the Institute of Public and Environmental Affairs. And they said, Ma Jun, we need help with this. Ma Jun has specialized in making searchable databases on China's pollution issues using government data. They have, they have a water pollution map, they have air pollution, soil, the whole nine yards. And so they made a black and stinky water map. And so they've been working with the government to help them in tracking, you know, when all these, this information comes in from the public. And then, and so Majun has become an information clearinghouse. And so when the government makes some steps on it, they can post it up on the map. So I, that's one of many examples where we've seen still a little bit more political space is still open for civil society and communities to get involved and, you know, water. Yeah. I want to bring up one um, pollution problem that you've done some work on, Jennifer, and neither of you have mentioned yet. To this point, you focused on chemical and biological pollutants, things that are stinky and thing like ag runoff and industrial chemicals. But Jennifer, China is doing a bit on plastic pollution as well, keeping that from choking and overwhelming rivers and then then the ocean? Well, it's, I'm glad you asked that. I have a whole project now that's been looking at ocean plastic issues in, in Asia, particularly China and Southeast Asia. The Chinese government has been moving quite aggressively on improving their waste management and trying to, you know, 46 cities have been charged with, you know, voluntarily, I just love that in China, little air quotes, voluntarily, 46 cities have been working to improve waste sorting and collection. And there's also more regulations on trying to, to maybe ban certain plastics, to require companies to take more responsibility. Because as you've hinted, you know, China is the number one leaker of ocean plastics coming through their rivers. And I also, in a, in a couple of months, we'll be starting to focus more on the Mekong, looking at all the Mekong Basin countries, their contribution to a lot of plastic that's going into the Mekong. I'm not yet seeing national action focused on helping river basins specifically on plastics, 
but we are seeing from, from the bottom up grassroots organizations that are starting to do inventories to kind of see like, well, where's this plastic coming from? Trying to capture some of this as well. So it's, you know, if you're interested in kind of up and coming issues to watch in China, it's going to see how the plastic pollution issue really pans out in terms of policy and, and citizen action in China. All right. Well, that's one to watch. Uh, speaking of up and coming, <laughs> last year there were record floods in Southern China. The water was up and it kept coming and coming and coming to the point where the reservoir behind the Three Gorges Dam was at its highest level on record since the the reservoir was filled. Uh, I'm wondering, Scott, about recovery from those floods and what lessons might have been learned to prevent a catastrophe, a catastrophic dam failure from happening in southern China. Thanks, Brett. And just as kind of a a little bit of, of context here, I think there are a couple of reasons why uh, this particular flood event was really uh, notable and concerning from a, a global perspective, not just sort of a China perspective. Flooding is, you know, is an increasing hazard to a large swath of the world. But the thing that that uh, makes China a little bit uh, distinctive in that regard is you have uh, such a large economy and, and such a high rate of urbanization that you sort of have this unique circumstance where there's a lot of economic assets as well as lives at risk from flooding, and yet you don't really have the same level of institutional capacity that you do in uh, more developed countries to deal with that threat. So even though you know in the U.S. and in Europe we too are seeing more and more flood events and higher and higher levels of flood risk. We have more well-developed flood insurance programs and other institutional support. China really lacks flood insurance programs at any comparable scale. There have been lots of efforts to develop those and they are in progress, but uptake remains much, much lower than in the developed world. And so when you do have these large flood events, they tend to create a lot more economic damage than they would otherwise. I do hasten to add that China has a very sophisticated flood warning uh, and uh, response system, and that has largely eliminated large-scale loss of life from flood events. I mean, as recently as the mid-90s, you would have thousands of people die from large-scale flooding events in China. Now it's more like the dozens, if that. So, I mean, any loss of life obviously is catastrophic, but we're talking, you know, orders of magnitude lower as a result of these investments that the Chinese government has made in flood warning and flood response. That leads to the second major reason that these types of events are concerning for Southern China. And it's really the presence of so many large dams, especially three gorges. And the density of population in South China means that if one of these large dams were to fail, you could potentially have millions of people who would be at risk from a catastrophic failure of one of those dams. Three Gorges itself is, by all publicly accessible sources, pretty well built, pretty solid, and doesn't ever seem to have been at serious risk during this flood event. Of much greater concern are the many thousands of, tens of thousands, really, of smaller dams that are dotted across southern China, some of which did fail. There's at least one that Reuters reported to have failed, Uh, fortunately did not result in any deaths, but did wash away several homes. So it's really the kind of concentration of, of those dams and the population density that makes flood events and the risk of dam failure so catastrophic. One more point on that. There's a kind of a, a little bit of political history here. 
where in 1976, just kind of coinciding with the end of the cultural revolution period in China, there was a catastrophic dam failure that was actually in Northern China and it killed uh, several thousand people. And many kind of argue that it hastened the Chinese Communist Party's desire to proceed with reform and development as opposed to kind of the policies that prevailed uh, during the Maoist period. So there's kind of this political history overlay um, to that question. And final point, China, uh, in particular, South China, is at continually increasing risk uh, of these flood events as a result of climate change. That's what all the models suggest. And certainly increasing rates of urbanization mean that there's more stuff, more built infrastructure, built environment to be at risk. And I, I'm going to I'm going to dive in here just real quick, but I want two things. I want to talk about sure, flooding and, and drought, the yin and yang of, of water quantity. Right. And I'm glad you ended up talking, Scott, there about about cities. A big program that's been a good trend to keep watching in China is the Sponge City Initiative that started in 2015 that at the beginning we all thought it was kind of like just kind of a silly sounding campaign. Sponge Cities is a green infrastructure initiative to help cities encourage them to find ways to create more water catchments from garden, rooftop, porous cement, uh, streets, sidewalks, and, and just other ways to capture the water. Because we had a, about six, seven years ago, correct me if I'm wrong, Scott, I mean, we had like a, a almost a dozen people like drowned in downtown Beijing, right? So we have- Right, and Wu, I think that and was Wu, 2012, maybe? 2012, like yeah, yeah. So, um, and then, you know, just last year, you know, get, after being whacked with COVID, you had Wuhan getting flooded because, you know, over the years we have these, these cities, I mean, Wuhan used to actually be a city where people used to have, there used to be a lot of canals, right? One of the Venices of China. And now they've built that all up. Well, they're on, think of, if you look at the map where they're located, they got two rivers coming together by them. So when Yangtze and the Han rivers, when there's a lot of rain, they get inundated. And so that's why there's been a, a, a big push. And you have a lot of groups like WWF China that have also been working with cities to try to take to create a more spongy city. That's good to see. Um, also going back to dams in terms of droughts, I don't know if Scott, if you saw that that they've brought up the question of putting a dam at Lake Poyang again. <laughs> Poyang is, is the largest freshwater lake in China that since around 2003, 2004, we started to see in this lake, you know, lakes always, they change, they're living entities, right? And so in the dry season, you know, they contract a bit and they expand in the wet. Well, since 2003, the dry season is starting earlier, lasting longer. Some of that is from maybe climate impacts of decreased rainfall, but big cause is attributed to the Three Gorges Dam. I mean, there's less water flow, but also that the holding the silt back means more, clear water going through. And then that, as it moves downstream, digs the river deeper. So it, it means that there's less water reaching Poyang, which is far downstream. There's also a lot of sand mining on the Yangtze River that's been widening the channel. So Lake Poyang is getting drier and drier. And it is the major wintering spot for bird migration, cranes from Siberia, oriental cranes. It's almost like, you know, 75 to 90% of these birds. So there's a lot of concern now that with this infrastructure project, which is a bit confusing. It's it's done. It's it's open for comment, and we should we should emphasize that that we are seeing in the past decade more and more laws and regulations and big projects like this do get opened up for public comment, which even international organizations can can put in their two cents. Um, yeah, I mean it's it's meant to supposedly kind of 
help with drought issues, but um, there's a little bit of suspicion on that. I know, Scott, you want to toss in any kind of Poyang comment that you have? <laughs> well, just to say, yeah, one thing that's always kind of challenging and interesting about dams is this kind of issue of, well, what are they for? And one of the things that dam builders always kind of use as a justification, this is true, you know, in any country, the U.S. as well, is that, well, dams serve, you know, multiple purposes. But what you usually end up finding is that they serve one purpose well, whether that be storage or, you know, hydropower generation, and then produce a lot of negative impacts in other areas. And that's one of the reasons why they're almost always so controversial, both, you know, in places like China domestically, as well as internationally. Lots of lots of parallels here with dam debates in the U.S. And an interesting point on, on dam history in China, Scott, about the collapse or failure in the 1970s in the U.S. There are also several notable dam failures that decade that led to uh, a much stronger dam safety regulatory regime in the U.S. Yeah, the Johnstown flood and uh, per- perhaps gets a little bit beyond our discussion. But yeah, thinking about it, you know, probably every large country has, you know, one one such incident. The U.K. had um, had something similar as well. Yeah, well, the Johnstown flood was in the 19th century. Yes. Um, but there were several Buffalo Creek in West Virginia in the, in the 1970s. I want to end with another parallel, kind of a, a political question. In the Obama administration, there was a bit of collaboration between the U.S. and China over energy and climate issues. And there was a lot of cooperation between the U.S. and China. Right, a lot. I need to, I need to oversell this. There was a lot of cooperation. Well, we signed a U.S.-China climate agreement, and I called it like the ping pong, like watching a Chinese ping pong match back and forth, back and forth with so many government delegations at that time working together on energy and environmental issues. Sorry, I have and the so this, speak, And so this week, <laughs> this week we have President Obama's vice president, Joe Biden, now being inaugurated as the U.S. president. So ending here, what do you see as potential for energy, water, climate collaborations between U.S. and Chinese governments? Well, the simple version is in the past four years, the U.S.-China relationship has drastically gone downhill. So most of us China watchers don't expect that the Chinese are going to open their arms widely to immediately going back to the way it was before, because the world has changed. I mean, Xi Jinping has pushed the country as the world's leader in terms of climate and environmental issues. We could debate that, of course. But, you know, I mean, they have at least been the big voice over the past four years. Um, I think that there are going to be definite opportunities, I think, for, you know, U.S., is probably gonna to have to prove their street cred again. Um, I mean, the, the Biden-Harris administration really has pushed forward that, you know, that we're gonna be serious on climate, gonna be serious on environment. And so, you know, walking the walk, talking the talk domestically is gonna be very important for a lot of other countries who might wanna cooperate with us. I think there's gonna be more opportunities for the, for the US to get involved with EU on more regional cooperation, partnering on issues such as, um, how about, it, it, this is a water issue, right? China imports a lot of agricultural commodities because when you import ag, you're importing water, right? China's been importing lots of soy now from Brazil, more beef, and the US and EU do as well. Well, the EU and the US have been starting to look at regulating this kind of commodity trade to make sure that, that you know the beef and the soy leather coming out of Brazil, for example, is not leading to deforestation. And so there could be an opportunity where the US 
and EU can maybe pull China in to kind of work together on making sure that, that this kind of agricultural trade does not lead to um, destruction of rainforests. So I, th I think that's, it's not gonna come immediately, but that said, I still have seen, you know, US NGOs, universities, academic folks have been still working with their Chinese counterparts, but it has been a lot slower in the past four years. So supply chains potentially leading to environmental regulation. Um, Scott, anything you see coming? I think um, bilateral, uh, you know, as, as Jennifer pointed out, under the Obama administration, there was, you know, an incredible amount of high level activity. And I mean, you know, looking back now, the photos of Obama standing alongside Xi Jinping making, you know, sort of joint climate pledges. I mean, that looks so, so much like a different era. I don't think we'll see that kind of very high level, very public bilateral engagement. I think what we will see is some kind of lower level uh, partnership and collaboration in terms of multilateral uh, fora, certainly in terms of additional follow-on talks to the Paris Agreement, UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. I think there will be more action in sectoral climate initiatives. I mean, there's a whole world of business-led sectoral emissions reduction efforts in industries like steel that are really important and potentially a lot more impactful, frankly, than government-to-government -government negotiations. And so I think we'll see a lot of kind of non-governmental collaboration in spaces like that. And then, you know, certainly at the NGO and the think tank and the university level. I uh, did work a little bit on the Paris Agreement during a previous stint at the State Department. But, you know, frankly, since I've been in the university environment, I think the richness of research collaborations with Chinese counterparts on climate issues has been in many ways more pronounced. So I expect all that to to continue. But, you know, just as a, as a kind of maybe concluding thought, I think there's no denying that all of this, um, you know, we kind of face two realities. One, we need some type of partnership between all large economies to tackle public goods issues. Obviously, we have a climate crisis. We have several water crises. We have, you know, a health crisis. But on the other hand, I think it's inevitable or, or you can't escape the fact that we are in a much more competitive dynamic when it comes to China. And there's just a lot of bad blood, frankly, at the governmental level after the last four years. And so it's going to be a really delicate balancing act trying to navigate between those two posts. Now you've got Taylor Swift's bad blood in my head. <laughs> <laughs> that was frankly my intention. <laughs> All right. Well, I said we we're going to cover a lot of the terrain, and I think we made good on that promise. I want to thank Jennifer Turner of the Wilson Center and Scott Moore of the University of Pennsylvania for joining us today. Thanks so much. I love chatting with you guys. Thanks, Thanks so guys. much, Fred, and pleasure, uh, pleasure to, to be able to share the mic uh, with Jennifer. <laughs> and now we're all going to go off singing. <laughs> you're welcome. We're gonna have to pay licensing rights for this now. Yes, that's true. Yeah. Well, my daughter's a big welcome. Taylor Swift fan, so I listen to. I hear it all the time. So, thank you so much. Bye, you guys. Yeah. Thanks so much. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye.